Welcome to Golden Beer Talks. Hey, John. Lovely to see all of you. We're going to get started. Because we always begin and end with gratitude, we're going to start tonight with Larry Day and Catherine Haskins, who have purchased this very special table. Yay! In the fall, when we have our annual celebration of Beer Talks, we have an auction, and it's an opportunity to avail yourself to this lovely service and um, provide us with a little bit of money so we can give gratitude gifts to our speakers, which is what we do with the money. So thank you very much, guys. I also want to thank Greg Reed. He's not in the room, but he's this amazing local musician who lets us use his sound equipment. So we always like to thank Greg. We want to thank the Windy Saddle staff for treating us so awesome and taking care of us and opening and pouring our beers. Thank you. And our wines. And we also want to thank goldentoday.com for always promoting our events and making our community a better place. If you're not on any of their email lists and you love Golden, go to goldentoday.com and sign up, and I'll send you an email every day and tell you something magical about this community. So we're going to start. We uh, have a uh, foreign tap. For our brewery this month, we're alternating. So we'll have a golden brewery every other month and a foreign tap the others. Our guest brewery this month is the New Image Brewery from Old Town, Arvada. And um, Nick is here from New Image. He's going to come up here and tell us all about the beers. Come on up, Nick. How's it going, guys? How's uh, everyone liking the beer so far? Yeah. Awesome, cool. Yeah, so um, yeah, we're uh, I'm from, with New Image Brewing Company. We're a little brewery in Old Town, Arvada. Just uh, lucky enough to celebrate our second anniversary about two months ago. Um, been a pretty exciting year for us. We were just named as uh, one of USA Today's uh, top ten best new breweries in the country. Yeah, yeah thank you, thank you. Yeah, we were uh, fortunate enough to come in at uh, number six on that list, but just to be a part of that, just to be asked to be a part of that was incredible on its own but um yeah so i'm here to talk to you a little bit about the beers and a little bit about the brewery so yeah new image was um we've kind of been around for quite a bit it was founded by uh our two owners sean and brandon they've been best friends since they were 11 years old and um grew up in very rural georgia and uh got kind of tired of not really being able to do anything and found out that at the age of 15 you could buy ingredients to make beer and you could uh, buy, <laughs> buy uh, kits to make beer, and they started brewing beer uh, in, uh, in uh, Brandon's dad's basement. Uh, and they're 15 years old, but obviously not consuming, of, of course. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, um, from there, Brandon went on to uh, go to Georgia Tech and graduated with an engineering degree and went on to work for Anheuser-Busch and um, then went on to move to uh, Pennsylvania to start a brewery called Brew Gentlemen. And uh, Brew Gentlemen has, uh, I think they got number three on the same USA Today list, but a year prior. And um, some things got really messy along the way, and he was no longer associated with that brewery. And he came home and was venting to Sean one day. And um, Sean took that as, I'm looking for an investor. So uh, Sean, a then school teacher, decided to sell his house and invest in New Image uh, without consulting his wife, that needs to be said. Um, she's now on board with it, of course, but um, two years later. 
Oh, I, yeah. it was probably whiskey knowing Jacqueline. But, <laughs> but yeah, so um, yeah, new image literally means to bring a new image to things that are not really talked about, specifically mental, uh, mental health and mental well-being. So we uh, are very fortunate to have some fantastic uh, charity sponsors or charity partners that we work with. One of them is the Jefferson Foundation. Uh, they are a really cool little organization that gives back to kids that grew up um, in unconventional ways, I guess you could say. Uh, so they provide a way to get kids out of quote-unquote funks and depressions and stuff like that by getting them involved in their community, starting community gardens, uh, helping them build out different things all within the community and making them... Um, yeah. No. Well, no, not that. <laughs> um, yeah, so they're, they're phenomenal. We're actually going to be producing a beer uh, and giving, I think I think we decided on 6% of uh, all of the profits go directly to them. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and, um, yeah, they're, they're phenomenal. They're some, they're, we actually are doing something with them on Thursday. Love those guys. Uh, they're, yeah, they're awesome. Um, yeah, we uh, we just we love helping out with that kind of stuff, and we love helping out with this kind of stuff. You know, Sean lives up the road, about two minutes away, and uh, yeah, that's uh, kind of the deal with New Image. But the beers that are being offered right now during uh, behind the bar, one of them is uh, East Coast Transplant, uh, the shirt I am sporting right now. Uh, it is our Vermont-style double IPA. That is the beer that got us where we are. Uh, before we were even opened, we were named as one of Beer Advocate's 30 best new breweries in the country. Uh, that was We got that award two and a half years ago before we were open, uh, which was really awesome. Uh, there's also Dyad, which is a kombucha blended sour saison. Uh, it's a collaboration with Rowdy Mermaid and Boulder. Um, we like to say intox while you detox because they're two finished uh, products, so you still got all the probiotics of the kombucha. And lastly is Moped. It's a super traditional Belgian lit beer with some blood orange added to it. Really light, crushable. You can have a bunch, and it won't, it won't kill you. But, uh, yeah. Do we, anyone have any questions on the beer so far? Then, cool. Then uh, it is my pleasure to bring up Dana. And uh, she is one of the co-sponsors of the event with Eco Women. And, yeah, give it up for Dana. Hello, everyone. Super exciting to be on this side of the Golden Beer Talk and have given some assistance with finding a great... I'm not that tall, so I'm like <laughs> stretching out the calf muscles up here. So um, anyway, really happy to be here on behalf of Colorado Eco Women, which is a nonprofit organization focused on networking and professional development among women working in the environmental space, whether they're scientists, engineers, educators, natural resource professionals. Uh, we host various events, offer some training, uh, volunteer opportunities, those types of things. You can find us, you know, use a Google machine, right? Everybody knows how to do that. Google Colorado Eco Women. You can find us on Facebook. We have an email listserv where we send out tons of job announcements. So I'd say one of the biggest benefits that we bring to the Colorado community is helping transplants from various places who say, hey, I'm moving here from New York. I'm moving from D.C. I heard about you guys. I'd love to get into this space, meet some cool folks, and find a job. So we do that. And one of our amazing Colorado Eco women and a golden local is our speaker this evening. Uh, Johanna Kovarik is the National Cave and Karst 
program manager for the U.S. Forest Service. So she gets to work in and with some of the most um, amazing places on the planet, uh, part of our public lands system, and we are super happy to have her in the agency, have her as a national and international resource, and to have her here in Golden tonight. So thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Dana. Thanks to Eco Women. Thanks so much to the Windy Saddle for, for hosting us and for hosting me tonight, as well as Barb and Whitney, all the awesome folks at Golden Beer Talks. Um, thanks. Thank you. So um, I have to tell you that I'm not good at titling things. And, um, you know, I haven't spent my whole life underground yet because I haven't spent my whole life yet. So, <laughs> um, so you know, tongue in cheek. Uh, let's see. All right, so I'm going to start with a question for all of you. And if you talk to me, I'll give you a prize. But I can't give all of you a prize, so don't get too excited. When you hear the word cave, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? Dark. Very good. Darkness. Yes, that is a very popular one, darkness. You get a cool magnet that says caves rock, so you can proudly display how much you love caves. Anybody else? Stalactites. Stalactites, awesome. That's a good one. I think there's somebody here. Bats. Bats, also a very popular answer. I like to hear that. Bats. You want to? Do you mind passing that back? Thank you. Yeah. Woo! Southern Indiana caver in the house. Blue Spring Cave, nice. All right. Damp. That is an excellent one. We'll see some photos with that. And that is my last magnet, but those are all good things. You could pass that back there. Excellent. Thank you all for playing. All right. So I got a story to tell you. It's probably one you're familiar with. You're hiking. You're out hiking. You're here in Colorado, and you're out hiking. And in the distance, you see this. How do you feel? What do you, are, are you excited? Are you interested? Are you scared? Scared? Do you run the other way? Just think about that. Think about how you'd feel if you saw that on the trail. Oops. Well, I went too far. But my next question was, would you go in? And so this is me. This is me a few years ago, we'll say. <laughs> um, I started uh, my experience with caves through the Student Conservation Association, which is an internship program um, for students around the country. It's been around for about 60 years, and it partners with different land management agencies. And I happened to get a call from Carlsbad Caverns National Park, and they asked me how I felt about elevators, of all things. I said, well, I like them, I guess. And so I was hired <laughs> to lead cave tours at Carlsbad. So Carlsbad, for those of you that are unfamiliar, is in New Mexico, our neighbor there to the south. And this was my first entrance. This was my first cave entrance. This is the natural entrance to Carlsbad Caverns National Park. And the coolest thing about this is that you all can go there anytime you want because it is one of our national parks. So my first day there, I got to walk in and uh, check out the natural entrance. And it blew my mind. This is... Ooh. There we go. I would say that I had too many beers, but I haven't had one yet. <laughs> so
So this is what I found down there. Somebody said stalactites. You can see here there's stalactites on the ceiling, large stalagmites on the, um, on the floor of the cave, lots of speleothems, which is a good vocabulary word, right? Secondary cave formations. So through my work at Carlsbad as an intern, I got a job up in southeast Alaska. My boss at Carlsbad said, how do you feel about Alaska? And I was like, I don't know. I've never, never really thought about Alaska. I grew up in the suburbs, did some ballet, didn't really think about Alaska. So I got a job up there leading cave tours. There is a show cave in southeast Alaska. It's on Prince of Wales Island, circled for you right there working for the Forest Service. That was my first job for the National Forest Service. And um, where I stayed up by the cave, there was a group of people that were mapping caves. So my first time going into wild caves was on the other end of a tape, mapping caves. And through being up in Alaska, um, I got to visit lots of caves. And I also got to see the interaction between the, the interaction between the surface, the forest, and the groundwater that moves through the caves below. And to me, that was very, very interesting. How does timber harvest on an active forest interact with groundwater, specifically in an environment that is karst? Another vocabulary word. So what you see there is some alpine karst here. There's some timber units there. And this is a large sinkhole on um, Prince Wales Island. Caver for scale. So I said karst. Let's talk about that. Karst is a landscape that dissolves, as you see there. And so wherever you have any type of bedrock or geology that would dissolve in, um, in water, you'll have karst. Karst forms through dissolution. And so the general types of bedrock you'll find that in are carbonates like limestone or marble or dolostone. But you can also have um, karst in things like halite or things that don't need an acid to dissolve. And in those areas, you'll find caves. So caves that you find in Karst are called solution caves, and there's a couple of them here. Down in Carlsbad, where I started, they had hypogenic caves, which means the water comes up from down below to dissolve away the rock. Up in Alaska, where I was at, they had epigenic caves, where the water comes down from above to dissolve the rock. And then again, as with groundwater below the water table, there you have aquifer, and in Karst, that's a Karst aquifer, where the cave passage is completely inundated. There's a lot of different resources in caves. You can kind of see some of them there. Um, water is a very important resource in karst. Many of, um, as water moves down through the karst aquifer, um, people drill into it with wells to get water, or they get it from springs. Some of the largest springs in the world are karst springs, up to 180,000 liters per second um, in some cases. And what's very interesting about karst is that there's not not necessarily a lot of storage. So that stream could go completely dry during the dry part of the year, which makes it very difficult for people living in those areas and to manage those areas. Here's a spring at Blanchard Springs, um, which is in Arkansas. So karst is across the world. I apologize, this is very tiny, and they have used a very thick line for their streams. But generally, where you see blue is where you have karst. And so the point of this is just to say you have karst all around the world. 25% of people globally get their water from karst environments. So there are other caves, right? There are caves that are not formed in that kind of geology. We call caves that form not through dissolution. So caves that form through other processes than dissolution, we call them pseudokarst or not karst. <laughs> 
A lot of geologists don't necessarily like that term because there's already terminology for the areas where those caves form, such as volcanics. So who's been watching what's been going on in Hawaii? Lava tubes forming right now. Um, not so exciting if you have a house there, but really great if you're a caver. Um, so you can see the process here. Generally, um, this, is a, this is a Hawaii volcano. Basically, the lava flows out, it cools, roofs over, and then you have a tube that cavers get to go play in. Other types of caves, here's a picture of a lava tube with caver for scale. It has a little bit of a different character than a cave in karst. And there's other types of caves besides that. Here's a sea cave. This is, again, back on the Tongass National Forest in southeast Alaska that forms through mechanical erosion, through wave action. It's caver there for scale. And caves can form in glaciers. Here's a glacier cave on a national forest in the Pacific Northwest. And another picture of what that looks like um, in the winter. And there are other types of caves as well. There's talus caves, which is basically just you have a canyon, and then you have a rock slide that covers it up. But it creates the same kind of environment um, where things that live in caves like to go. And speaking of that, um, there's other resources besides water in caves. Water is a big component, especially in karst areas, but all kinds of caves have biology in them. And I have cleverly put for you across the bottom kind of your range of cave biology. You can kind of see some of it here. There are different zones for biological life. But um, anywhere from species like the yellow-haired goldenrod in Kentucky that only likes to hang out near certain cave entrances, to bats, to salamanders, you have troglozines that visit caves, troglophiles that love caves, and then troglobites down here that are fully adapted to only live underground their entire life. So I'm going to take a break here for some cuteness. Um, I know not a lot of people, some people are afraid of bats. Not so. Bats are very cute. <laughs> Aren't they adorable? And they're such a great resource. They provide tons of free pest control for farmers. And unfortunately, they're, um, they're in trouble right now. White-nose syndrome, many of you have probably heard of it, is a um, fungal pathogen that's impacting bats across North America. You can see the spread of it here. It started around 2004, 2005, and it's spread across the country. Luckily, it's not out west yet. We don't have it here yet, and we'd like to keep it that way. So if you're interested in more information about that, you can check out whitenosesyndrome.org. Other resources in all kinds of caves are cultural resources. There are a lot of artifacts and um, information about our prehistory. Um, one of the caves in southeast Alaska, um, there's a 15,000-year-old or 10,000-year-old um, uh, person found in the cave. And uh, it was shown on National Geographic. And it's, it's gone into a lot of research into where did people come from when they came to this continent originally, or um, as part of the different waves of folks coming over to, to the Americas. Um, Caves are also important tribally now. A lot of them are sacred places for tribes, and so we need to be very respectful of caves. And then also just purely the geology, the mineralogy, the paleontology in caves. One of the things that I think surprises people most is that sediment is a really important resource in caves. Through speleothems, such as stalagmites, we can learn about the paleoclimate of our area where we live. So we're going to go back to Karst, and we're going to go back to me. <laughs> so when I was working in Alaska, again, I got really interested in the dynamics between um, land use on the surface and groundwater beneath the surface, and specifically in karst areas. There's a lot of special things about karst. Because it's so open to the subsurface, because you have water that goes directly underground, it's also open to contamination. And because it's out of sight, out of mind, a lot of people don't 
necessarily understand how that dynamic works. So this is kind of like Kentucky, right? So you have a lot, lot of farms. Um, you know, in a lot of cars places, people tend to put trash in sinkholes because they think it just goes away. Um, and people have wells down into the water. And so all that contamination that's coming off of these areas, unless it's dealt with properly, could go into your neighbor's well in a matter of 24 hours, depending on where you are. So how do we study that? How do we know? How do you know when you're putting a well in in an area like that that it's going to hit near somewhere where there's a farm? Or um, when you're... <laughs> so this is the uh, Corvette Museum in Kentucky, Bowling Green, Kentucky, where I did my master's work. This is the last five years or so. They had a huge collapse under the Cor Cor Corvette Museum. I'm sorry if there are car lovers in the audience. <laughs> Cover your eyes. <laughs> Some people notice that this is a pretty distinctive Corvette here. I will tell you that Corvettes were harmed in this, in this collapse. <laughs> um, you know, and so this is another issue, right? So contamination of water, but also safety is a huge piece of this. And in, in order to understand um, that where we put our trash, that is a refrigerator, um, you know, it's going to impact what's beneath us and then come back and haunt us, we need to know where those void spaces are in the subsurface. And so we learn that very basically to start out with by cave mapping. So that is me making a pirate face. <laughs> and we map caves very basically with um, a compass. And this is a clino. You turn it around and measure the inclination. So we measure direction, inclination, and distance. Um, I will tell you that we still do map caves this way, although I had a kid in a grotto uh, last summer when we were up near a cave tell me, man, I went caving with these older people, and they had these really old mapping devices. I think they called them Suntos. I was like, yeah, so we still use those sometimes, <laughs> especially when caves are really wet. Um, when we have a better cave environment for electronics, we can use distos, which are digital um, lasers that measure distance. And some of the distos now, they've been able to put um, compass and inclinometer into it so you can get it all in one shot. But um, they are very susceptible to water, which caves have a lot of. So you can see here there's a survey station, and I am reading from the survey station. So usually you have two people reading numbers back and forth to each other, and you have a sketcher that writes all that down and keeps book. So this is an example of some notes, kindly provided to me by my fiancé. Um, you can see the data here on one side, so distance, compass, clino, and then we also measure left, well, that's right, left for you, left, right, up, down, where the station is at, so we get an idea of what the cross-section looks like. And then you draw it here. This is the plan, looking up from, from above, and then um, here's a cross-section that's kind of like a slice of the passage, and then we also do a running profile, which is not on this page. So here's a, a look at a finished map. And again, it's very, very tiny. I apologize for that. Here's the plan view. And then this is the profile, which you didn't get to see in that last page. So if you can imagine in your mind, you can imagine a caver just kind of running around in there, because it's basically kind of like if you would look at the passage as you moved forward, that would be the, the profile. And that's a cave up in southeast Alaska that we, that we mapped. So this spaghetti noodle mess is uh, the line plot that you get, the raw data that you get from the cave survey. Again, that distance, the azimuth, and then you get some of the um, shape of the passage from measuring that left, right, up, down. And so what's important about this is, again, that idea of impacts on the surface impacting the subsurface. So imagine that you have a tiny entrance here 
No other entrance is in this large system, but you have an oil tanker that spills oil or something or gas over here. You know, you're going to see impacts from that. You could see impacts from that closer to the surface. You could see them down at the spring. But if you don't know where your cave passages are, you don't understand how they're connected, you're not un- going to understand how that impact on the surface um, will, will spread and have impacts further around your, your area. So um, here's another look at a profile. Another use for cave maps is um, for navigation. So this particular cave is a cave we were mapping in China, and uh, we were using this for derigging to kind of plan how we were going to stage our derig. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, you can see that our <laughs> surveyor had a comment, editorial comment, about this particular cave. Um, but they're also used for navigation. And so as we're navigating through a cave, how do we do that? Um, crawling, as you saw on my first picture, which might have made some of you a little nervous. Um, but we use ropes. So we fix ropes in caves. We use fixed ropes. Cavers use what's called single rope technique. We use static line. And um, we like to use natural rigging points wherever possible because we don't want to impact the cave environment. But um, when we can't do that, we bolt into the rock itself and then put um, anchors and hangers in and then fix our our rope into those uh, those hangers with with different carabiners or or malleons, as you see there. So yes, this is is my fiance. Uh, and uh, we use drills sometimes where we can't use drills. Um, we use um, hand drills, hand drivers, uh, hammers and drivers. So um, as we fix those ropes as we move through the cave, we then use our vertical equipment. I found this handsome gentleman online <laughs> so that you all could, could see what we use as a frog system. Cavers in the U.S. use a lot of different systems, but internationally, predominantly, cavers use what's called a frog system because it's much easier to move past those rigging points in the cave. And so you have two ascenders, one at your chest, one at your hands. Some people use one at their foot as well, though there's not one in this picture. And you basically just kind of jug up the rope. What's not in this picture is a descender. This is an ascending system. Cavers generally use what's called a rack or a bobbin, like a pencil stop. Some of you may be familiar with that. A rack, um, it's kind of a bunch of bars on a U-shaped frame. And the idea basically is just to increase your friction as you're rappelling down a rope. Climbers use ATCs and figure eights. Sometimes they may also use stops as well. So here's a picture of one of the um, caves we're mapping in China of a caver on rope using a frog system. I think that pits probably 500 meters total. Um, and of course, that results in lots and lots of gear. You can see a gear pile there. And I would like to point out, it also requires lots and lots of beer. <laughs> um, so caving, you may feel that caving is glamorous as I'm talking about it. You may say, wow, <laughs> caving is just so exciting and glamorous. I'm here to tell you that it's not. Most of the time it looks something like this Or like this I am on rope in that picture Oh, sorry Here, I'll shrink Or like this Or like this Or like this At best, we're usually walling around in mud or going through low air spaces in cold water <laughs> or hot water. Oops, I'm not quite sure how to make it go back. Hang on. Sorry about that. Oh, uh, there we go. Okay. Oh, uh-oh. Oh, oh. 
<laughs> All right. So that's cave mapping. That's moving around in a cave. Um, other ways that we discover what's in the subsurface and learn about how impact how impacts on the surface will impact the subsurface as well as lands beyond is through dye tracing. Put a non-toxic fluorescent dye in the ground would um, go away in the sunlight, but um, you don't have sunlight underground, so it's a very good tracer for us. Um, I don't have a lot of time to go super into dye tracing today, but we use it pretty frequently. Start out by putting some in the ground, just kind of see where it comes out, and sometimes that phase takes a long time because in karst, uh, the watersheds don't follow topographic design uh, divides always or really ever. <laughs> so that's kind of a fun part, and then you can get into more quantitative dye tracing with data loggers and, and other means. So I'm going to give you a case study. Um, I worked up in Alaska. I did a lot of dye tracing and cave mapping there. Um, I went down to Bowling Green, Kentucky to get my master's, still working in Alaska on my master's project while I was there with the environmental group I worked with. I got involved in caving in China. And so we're looking primarily, trying to make sure I'm not in anybody's way, at this area, Chongqing area. And I worked with the Hongmegui Cave Exploration Society. And Hongwegui has uh, was founded in 2000 or 2001. There are 100 members from 13 countries, and they mapped. We we've mapped over 400 kilometers of cave passage, thousands of cave entrances, um, some of the deepest caves in China and in the world, and some of the largest cave rooms in the world, which we just started um, really uh, mapping with lidar, which is pretty exciting. So through the work of Hongwegui. Um, we inscribed a World Heritage Site in the South China Karst. And so Guilin is kind of, um, it's kind of a type location for Karst in China. You see a lot of it, pictures of it where there's stone towers and rivers. We're working up in this area by Wulong specifically. And um, it's one of the largest Karst regions in the world. And here is a map um, so near Wulong is a little town called Hoping. You can see it over here. This is one of the large cave systems that we've been working in. And they don't connect yet, although, gosh, we've been trying. Um, it's probably about, when you put the two together, I think it's about 100 kilometers of cave passage in that area itself. And these things that you're looking at here, what we call Tianqin, which are huge karst pits that have to be 500 meters across and 500 meters tall to qualify as a Tianqin. Um, here's uh, one of those maps. So that picture you saw earlier of the caber on rope is in, I think, this shaft here. And so this is another area um, near Hoping, just south of there in that World, World Heritage Site area where we've been pushing different connections into the larger Tianqing, Tianqing system. Um, so we keep finding entrances, and then they go and then connect in with the main, main system after lots of rope and beer. So here is, again, that Wulong Carson. To give you an idea of those northern areas of that World Heritage Site, here is um, the Hoping area. So that big spaghetti noodle mess of cave passage you saw is here. And then Tianxing is down here. And so that system that you're seeing and everything that we're looking here is uh, with the um, deeper pits is here. And you can see where that river just kind of disappears. <laughs> So um, another note back home in the U.S., um, I would 
kind of like to mention this. So I started caving at Carlsbad Caverns. And when I first started caving there, you know, I was not a caver, obviously. I was a guide. I was an intern. I didn't know anything. And they had all these beautiful pictures up in the break room of this cave. And I said, oh, what is that? And they said, oh, that's Lechaguilla. It's this cave, you know, and nobody ever gets to go into it. Like, you will never, ever, ever get to go there. And I was like, oh, man, you know, wow, that's so cool. And when I was there, there were expeditions of these cavers, and they would come, and then they would go in the cave for a week and then come back out. And, you know, I was just, oh, man, I'm never going to get to go in there. Well, um, I think it was five years after I left Carlsbad and I finished my master's, I got invited on my first camp trip into Lechaguea Cave. This is a very famous formation in Lechaguea. Uh, they're the chandeliers. That's me. <laughs> so that was a very full circle moment for me and very exciting. And one of the things that we try to do as cavers is to get new people onto trips and to experience cave mapping and to experience caving and um, get bit by the bug and enjoy it as well. And hopefully cite some passions into cave mapping and science and, and all of that. So, as uh, Dana mentioned at the beginning of the talk, I am the National Cave and Karst Program Lead for the U.S. Forest Service. And so, um, after working on the Tongass National Forest in southeast Alaska for about nine years, um, I got the job down here out of Denver, Colorado. I work for the National Office, but a lot of our geologists are based here in Denver, very similar to the Park Service. Um, there are, uh, so this is a good picture for two reasons. One, you can get an idea of how much um, karst and or pseudokarst or potential forming lands there are in the U.S., so you can kind of see that. And then the national forests are kind of in that weird green color. And then um, where you see the red, that's where the national forests overlap where karst is. So there, or karst or pseudokarst. So there's 100, over 100 national forests either have caves that we know about or have the potential to have caves or have karst or something. So um, it's a pretty, pretty broad program across quite a few, quite a few forests. And we have, um, we have a lot of really cool caves. You know, the National Park Service has one particular cave that's pretty cool. It's the longest cave in the world. Does anybody know what it is? Yes, awesome. High five. <laughs> Air five. Yeah, Mammoth Cave in Kentucky, um, down in this area, um, is Park Service Cave. Uh, Jewel Cave uh, National Monument is also one of the longer caves in the world, and it's primarily underneath the National Forest System lands, although the entrance and the tours are managed by the National Park Service. Um, we also have the 17th longest sea cave in the world. We have the two longest lava tubes in the North, North American continent. The longest lava tube is Kazamur Cave, which is the longest one in the world, and that's in Hawaii, which is pretty cool. Um, we have the deepest cave in the U.S. Um, that's up in Montana on the Flathead National Forest, as well as quite a few other pretty awesome cave resources. So we're talking about impact. The National Forest Service is, of course, uh, conservation is our mission. We are a multi-use agency. So there's a lot of stuff going on in the surface. And so we have to be um, very careful when we're planning different projects to make sure that the projects that we're planning don't impact karst and cave resources in those areas. So there's a lot of potential, um, there are a lot of potential projects. And we all sit and talk about um, how to protect caves um, when they're on those national forests, when there's different activities occurring. 
So management challenges with the program. There's another cute bat. You knew I was going to throw one in there. <laughs> um, awareness and knowledge about the program. Again, caves are underground, right? Out of sight, out of mind. For a long time, people were throwing trash into sinkholes because they didn't know where it went. It just went away, and they never saw it again, or so they thought. Um, so just awareness and knowledge about the resource, um, what it means, how, how to work with it, um, how to protect it, how to conserve it. Um, time and funding of field personnel, of course. Um, a lot of our land management agencies are seeing cuts to personnel and, and funding, and so that's that's always a strain to try to have people out there on the ground to discover these things, to inventory them for us. Um, and then threats to cave resources such as white-nose syndrome, such as invasive species, um, imp- caves being loved too much, too much impact, um, those sorts of things. So... Um, there's that cave entrance again. How do you feel about it now? Same? Same? Maybe less interest, less interested in going in? More interested? Well, if you're more interested, wait. Don't go in. You can't go by yourself. And you can't go if you don't know anything. You need to go with people that know how to conserve the resources, how to protect it, and also how to be safe. So to learn more about caving, and this is a cave diver. We didn't really talk about that tonight, but um, cave divers will map caves where caves are completely inundated with water. You can see the dive line off to the left. Um, one, of the, the longest, um, one of the longest submerged caves in the U.S. is on the um, National Forest in Florida outside Tallahassee. That's one of our partners that's working to map a conduit there. So one of our awesome partners is the National Speleological Society. Say that five times fast after three beers. Um, There's information about them on your tables, and I have plenty more, so if there isn't, I can give you one. There's a How to Cave Responsibly booklet. Um, There are grottos in this area that have meetings. Um, They're up on their websites. Uh, There might be a couple of grotto members here. (laughs) You can raise your hands if you want. I won't make you. So if you have questions about caving or getting involved with caving, or you just want to hang out with people that are into caving and see cool pictures, um, their meeting times are online. And they do a lot of cave survey and cartography. They also do trips that are just fun, um, inventory and monitoring work, and all of that. Another one of our partners is the Cave Research Foundation. They primarily work in concentrated areas. For us, they work on the Mark Twain National Forest, which is in Missouri. Um, They work on cave gating projects to protect bat hibernacula, uh, also abandoned mine gating projects, and then they manage um, large databases of cave data sometimes for our forests. And then finally, probably the easiest way is to get online and check out a recent project. Um, we had a partnership of over 20 partners, including different agencies. The two folks that you just saw, or the two groups that you just saw there, NSS and CRF. Um, and then Prince William Network, which is a school network out of the Washington, D.C. area, creates these distance learning adventures for kids and adults. At caveslive.org, there's a couple of different videos. There's a 40-minute informational video, and then there's a live question and answer video that was recorded. There's all kinds of lesson plans and, and videos and pictures, and it's all free. So feel free to head there to check out more about caves if you're interested. And... Um, as, as we said at the beginning, I like to start and end with thanks. Um, the slides from China, a lot of them were from Aaron Lynch. This is Aaron Lynch over um, one of the largest cave rooms in the world. We flew a kite in the bottom of it because of all the wind moving through the channel. I, I was trying to find the video of that, but I couldn't. <laughs> 
Um, Aaron Lynch was really the person that was the ringleader for all of the um, Hongmogui Exploration Society work in China. She is awesome. She's a she's a badass. I can say that right. And <laughs> she's a super badass. She is going and she is um, working for the Park Service now, which is really cool. All the photographers. We have awesome cave photographers. It's hard to take pictures in a cave. Um, Steve, who shared some cave survey stuff with us, the Windy Saddle, of course, Golden Beer Talks. So. I think I did pretty good. All right. <laughs> we are going to take a quick break so we can get a beer for our speaker, as well as anybody else here who needs another beer, and we will come back for Q&A. So stick around. So I don't know if you'll have questions, but this young man's name is Camden, and he apparently does some caving with his dad. So adorable. Awesome. All right, we're going to do some Q&A here. Welcome back. Welcome, welcome. Welcome, welcome. Welcome back. All right. I'm going to hand this over. All right, I'll explain it. Can you start clapping or something? Okay. We're going to start Q&A. We're going um, to have a quick little intro here about the cue ball. So this is a portable microphone that we can throw out there. So when you ask your question, we can record it for our podcast, which is very useful to the people listening to the podcast to know what the questions were. So um, Bart's going to be in charge of it. After you ask your question, you need to throw it back to Bart, and then he'll manage it. So we try to avoid some feedback. <laughs> If that happens again, we'll just we'll cash out the cue ball. I think. Yeah, we're just gonna. We're not gonna do it. We have too much feedback risk. Um. So Steve has a question. We're just gonna start the Q and A. Here you go. Okay. Hi, hi, Steve. Oh, good, I know that one. <laughs> it's 408 miles. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the question was, Steve, Steve asked, uh, what is the current mapped length of Mammoth Cave, which is, again, the longest cave in the world? And uh, Cave Research Foundation has been working very hard for many years, and um, it's at 408 miles. I think it's important to note that that is not a straight line distance. <laughs> As you saw in those maps up there, they're kind of all, all the passages are sort of on top of each other. So, yeah, but good question. 408 miles. I'm so happy I knew that. <laughs> Anybody else? Yes. Well, can you talk a little bit about Florida? I mean, I swear sure. the forest is all forest, and I mean, I'm it is. Oh, yeah. They know. <laughs> yeah, so um, I actually did my PhD at the University of South Florida, which was really great. I got to go on a lot of hydrogeo field trips and learn a lot about the karst down there. And um, geologically, it's relatively young, um, and it is pretty much um, pretty much all karst predominantly. And so there are a lot of issues in Florida with water because there is so much development um, in that area. And so I think, I guess I'll tell a story that's related to that. So strawberries are popular down there. There's a lot of strawberry growing, going on. 
And um, there's a lot of groundwater pumping um, out of the karst aquifer. And so what happens is, in the winter, like around February, they start to have some, some frosts, right? And so they'll pump, and I didn't know this when I went down there. I think it's fascinating. They'll pump to cover the strawberries so that they won't, um, they won't be impacted by the freeze. So they'll form a thin ice layer over the strawberry. But they pump a lot of water during that time period. And what happens is you get saltwater intrusion into the aquifer. Um, you can also have sinkhole collapse. So you'll start to see stories about Florida man swallowed by sinkhole like around January, February, because they're increasing the amount of pumping that they're doing. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of interesting stories about Carson, Florida, but, yeah, there's, there's a lot of cave divers working to map those conduit systems and to understand exactly where those drainage basins are. Um, and a lot of... So Florida has different water management districts, and um, they're all pretty in tune with uh, kind of what's going on in terms of the karst down there. So I don't know if that answered your question or not, but... Yeah, there's a lot of facets to that, that problem. Yeah. Uh, yes. What is the permitting process? Is there a permitting process on various levels of federal land for gaming? Yes. Yes. So um, national parks have permitting process. Oh, sorry. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. So the question was, is there a permitting process on federal lands for caves, I think, in general? Um, Park Service is a pretty well-established permitting system, and it depends on what activity you're wanting to do. For example, if you're going to do a commercial activity on federal lands, you have to get a permit. Like if you're an outfitter guide and somebody's paying you to go caving, gosh, who would pay for that, right? Uh, <laughs> that requires an outfitter guide per- permit, um, research permits. There are permits for research. Um, if you want to just go and have fun in a cave, um, that can also require permits, but not every land management agency does that in terms of allowing people underground for recreational purposes and not all caves. And so um, the Forest Service is a decentralized agency, and what that means is that um, each region, each forest kind of has their own rules potentially in terms of how they manage their caves and what they permit and what they don't permit. So um, the answer is yes, it really just kind of depends on where you want to go, what's being permitted, what's not being permitted, what's allowed, what's not allowed. Okay, I think there's a question in the back. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was fascinating when you showed the dying process. Yeah. What chemical or what compound do you use? Um, so it's just... It's just um, yeah, thank you. So her question is, what, what chemical or what compound do you use for, for dye tracing specifically? Um, it's actually just pretty common substance that you like Mountain Dew. You know, there's fluorescein in Mountain Dew. We use fluorescein. We use rhodamine. Um, in areas that are more rural where you don't have optical brighteners, like you would have in Tide, people use tinopol, which is the optical brightener in Tide, and that's really useful because it's clear, but we can catch it on dye packets or... Um, through uh, data loggers. Uh, So they're all non-harmful, non-toxic, and they go away in sunlight. They degrade in UV. So, um, yeah, it's a good good question. And it's a lot of people ask that because when they see us show up, we put on these, like, big yellow Tyvek suits and, like, with a hood and we have gloves on because... We can detect dye up to parts per trillion, and so you'd ruin the dye trace if you got it all over your clothes and then went caving, right? And so we cover up to make sure that we're not getting it on us so that we don't ruin the dye trace, not because it's hazardous. <laughs> so that's a, that's a good question, too. Yes? If a person wants to start experiencing some caving, what would be the starting point? Who, where, would the content, et cetera, just to maybe initially 
Sure. So the question is, look, I learn. <laughs> the, uh, if you want to start caving, um, how, would you, how would you get involved in caving, or how would you start that process? So the first thing that I would recommend if you're super new to it and you have no idea how you're going to feel about it is to visit one of our, to visit one of our caves, such as Blanchard Springs Caverns. Um, can't think of one here that's super local for the Forest Service that's open, but um, there's a lot of National Park Service caves, such as Carlsbad, that are open. And then one of our partners is the National Caves Association, and they have caves all across the country. And so Cave of the Winds is a really good option for you all down in Colorado Springs. Um, There's also... um, Glenwood Caverns out in uh, Glenwood, Glenwood Springs. So that's another option. Um, so those are a good couple ways. I will tell you that on June 9th at Get Outdoors Day at Sloan's Lake, um, one of our awesome NSS, National Speological Society members, is going to have a um, cave simulator. He's really great. He's an engineer from MIT that made this cave simulator that you can crawl through, and there's formations in there, and when you bump them, they beep at you, and then you get a score when you come out to see how good at conservation you've been. So that's also a really great option. But beyond all that, if you've done all that, and you're bit by the bug, and you totally want to go caving, um, I recommend checking out the grottos in the area. There are different National Speleological Society groups here in Colorado. There's a couple of them here in the Denver area. One of them is the Front Range Grotto. They meet every third Wednesday at O'Meara Ford, which is up in Westminster at 7 p.m., 7.30 p.m. 7.30 p.m. Um, So there's Front Range Grotto. They usually have a little bit of a business meeting, and then somebody talks about how awesome their caving trip was and shows you some pretty cool pictures, or they sit around and tie knots, or they go somewhere and drink beer, which we all like. Um, And then there's also Colorado Grotto, which meets at Perry and Terry Automotive of all unlikely places, which is near downtown, and I believe they meet the first Thursday of every month, also about 7 p.m., so those, that information is online. If you Google Colorado Grotto or Front Range Grotto, there should be a web page that will tell you more about that. Yeah, awesome. Frontrangegrotto.org, Dana tells me, is the website. Also, I will tell you, there's a couple of grotto members here in the audience that I bet would love to talk to you. So if you're interested, they're sitting at that table right there. <laughs> right. Yes. Transfer of communicable disease. Wow, man, I don't know. I don't know if we can talk about that here. <laughs> what are What are you asking me, sir? So he asked about transfer of communicable diseases. Um, uh, oh. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, So invasive invasive species. So not people diseases, like um, wildlife diseases, invasives. Yeah, Yeah, okay. Um, So... (laughs) Sure, sure. Yeah, and so... um, before you go into a cave environment, it's really important that you make sure that all of the gear that you have is clean. So very similar to um, what they talk about with fly fishermen and the chytrid fungus, if any of you are familiar with that. Um, basically, you want to decon all of your gear and equipment. And if you've used your gear and equipment somewhere where white-nose syndrome has been found, where we know that it is, 
we don't want you to use that gear and equipment somewhere where it isn't yet, hopefully not ever. So it's very important to make sure that all of your gear is completely clean. And on the whitenosesyndrome.org website, there is a, not one, not two, but five-page, six-page protocol on how to decide if you should bring your gear to a particular cave or not. And if you have gone into a cave where there's whitenose syndrome, how you can clean it. Um, And it's a pretty easy process these days. It just involves soaking your gear in um, hot water. I believe it's 50 degrees C um, for 20 minutes. Or you can use some chemicals such as um, uh, quaternary ammonia soak for a specific period of time. And you make sure you get all the mud and dirt off of it. So we like to be very careful that whatever we're taking underground is clean and couldn't transfer communicable diseases um, to what's living down there. And that's, um, it's, it actually gets more interesting than that because one of the things that we're really looking at these days is microbes in caves. And so, you know, it's kind of hard, but every time you go underground, you're carrying a whole bunch of nutrients with you, your skin cells, um, you know, just all the stuff we have as people. And so that impacts the cave environment all on its own. And that's not something that um, we can easily prevent. But when we camp in Lechaguilla Cave, which doesn't have water moving through it and washing things out, we bring plastic sheets and we put all of our camping equipment and we stay on that plastic sheet when we're in camp. We eat on that plastic sheet. And then we carefully fold that plastic sheet up and bring it out with us after five days or six days or however long we're we're in the cave. Yes? Um, pretty much, um, so there can be, so the question was, um, other than sea, other, other than sea caves, are there caves that, um, you have to take oxygen into? Um, you don't always have to do that in sea caves. Um, some sea caves are, in fact, um, you know, inundated with water, but many aren't. Most, the ones that I have mapped haven't been. Um, but yeah, water-filled passages, like in Florida, a lot of caves are beneath the water table, and so scuba divers go in there to map those caves. Um, in the Yucatan, in Mexico, um, a lot of those caves are, again, beneath the water table, and so folks are scuba diving in those. Um, when you're in a cave that is a solution cave, such as an epigenic cave, when you're following a stream down into the cave system, inevitably, it is most likely going to sump, which means that it hits the water table and the cave continues in water-filled passage. And so we do tank hauls and um, cave divers go into some of the deepest caves in the world through air-filled passages on ropes until they hit a sump, and then they'll put their dive gear on and go and and map um, there. So, yes, that is an option for you. If you love diving, there is a recreational activity. You could take up. Oh, Thai. Thai. (laughs) Steve. Are carbide lamps still used ever? Carbide lamps still used ever. Sort of. <laughs> uh, the Fisher Ridge Cave Project, um, which Steve, my fiance, is um, the chairperson for the grotto that's managing that, they've started to use them again to mark stations when they're surveying. Um, but not really. Um, most people are using electric lights just because it's, it's safer, cleaner, easier. Um, in alpine caves um, where it's colder, I, I still think it's kind of nice to use a carbide light because the generator keeps you a little warm, right? <laughs> um, but no, predominantly people are using electric lights these days. Yeah. Yes? What's the longest section you've had to shimmy through? And how do you feel about that? You know, somebody just asked me that last week. So he asked, um, what is the longest section you've had to shimmy, shimmy through, and how did you feel about that? Um... You know, I don't know, just because I haven't really... I mean, obviously, I've mapped it, because I just said I did, but... (laughs) 
I don't. I can't. I can't say that I remember, but I will tell you that there's a cave in Virginia that was a all horizontal, no rope work involved. That I think it was um, probably a couple hours of crawling, but. It was super fun because the passage was really wide and my shoulders, as it turns out, were just narrow enough that I could pencil roll. And I love pencil rolling in caves. And if you don't know what pencil rolling is, maybe if you have a niece or a nephew or kids, ask them to pencil roll for you. I hope they know. But basically, you lie on the ground and roll. <laughs> so I hooked my pack to my ankle and just like rolled until I got dizzy. <laughs> And then stopped and rolled some more. So, um, you know, there's a lot of caves. Um, I'm working on a cave mapping project in Wisconsin um, where I got a friend to go with me. I told her it was 82% crawling. When we got out, she told me that she was fairly certain it was 94% crawling. (laughs) So um, some fairly long sections. I mean, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Anybody else? Yes. Yeah. The question is, how do new mapping projects get get selected or started? I'll tell you the fun way. So cavers are obsessed with caves, surprise. And so a lot of them will spend their free time wandering around in some of the nastiest, thickest, densest brush you've ever seen in the hopes that they will find a hole in the ground that is blowing air. So that is usually how most cave projects get started, is that you have a couple of people wandering around in rhododendron or out in the brush, and they find a hole. And so they start mapping it. So I would say most of the cave projects start out that way, whether they're on federal land or private land. In some cases, in the case of my project in Wisconsin, this cave has been known about for a long time. And uh, there's a golf course over the cave. And they've started to work with the county. And they're really interested in conserving the cave. And so they want to know where the passages go beneath the golf course. So yes. So it started out, the first time I went over there in 2005, it started out as work. I went with um, the Environmental Research Institute that I was working with, and we were doing a dye trace and um, aid climbing a waterfall and mapping a cave um, for a tourist cave in China. And this is actually, I will tell you, most of the international trips that we do, I've been working in the Philippines and a bunch of other places, generally we get somebody in that country that's interested in developing their caves for tourism as a sustainable way to raise money um, for the local people. Oftentimes karst areas are very poor and very rural as a way to raise money. Um, I know this has happened in Africa and Haiti, Philippines, China, all over the world. And so we went there because they were interested in developing more of the cave, and they were also interested in knowing the impacts farther down in the system, um, you know, because it impacted their, their tourist industry. So initially it was for work, but then the subsequent expeditions were all uh, grant-funded expeditions on our own time. You yes? Might, you might want to say something about checking the weather report. <laughs> I have friends that didn't in their past yeah, yeah. So um, as you can see, in Car- so the, the, the um, comment was you should check the weather report before you go into a cave. Um, so that's a great safety topic. I think safety is very important when you're underground. Again, you should never go caving by yourself. You should always carry certain things with you, enough light, independent light sources, safety, food, all of that. But in solution caves in particular, and, in, and specifically epigenic caves usually, you know, the water is impacting the subsurface 
fairly rapidly. As I said, you can have dye trace times that are within a matter of hours from the, the surface where the stream goes underground to the spring. And so we call that flashy. It's very flashy. The water um, you know, can build up pretty quickly underground. And what that means is if you're going through a low airspace, like you saw in my picture earlier, you can get stuck or, um, in a worst-case scenario, you can have fatality if you're obviously probably not prepared for a no-airspace situation. So it's really important to know um, what the weather looks like before you go into a cave like that. If you have any type of um, rain or anything like that that's expected, you don't do it. And we actually did that last week. Um, one of the projects I work in in Kentucky in the Whitpistle system, which is near Mammoth, there's what we, we, we lovingly call the splash entrance, which um, we tend to go in the winter because that's when water levels are lower, and you have to break up the ice, and then you crawl in. Anyway, so it sumps pretty easily, and so we didn't get to go into Wickpistle because there was a big thunderstorm um, for that day. So it's very important to check the weather report, for sure. Other questions? Dana? What is the most rare animal you've seen? Most rare, besides, besides cavers? <laughs> <laughs> um, so when I was working my dissertation area, I was down in Chiapas, Mexico, and we were down there. One of my friends who uh, has a company that deals with um, animals in the subsurface, uh, they found a cave-adapted tarantula. Um, and it wasn't, I know in your mind, you're like, whoa, that's pretty big. Well, it's smaller because it's underground. It was, you know, probably like that size. Um, but they found that, and I, I think they just put the paper out where they had somebody that um, named the species like in the last year or so. So that was pretty neat. It was actually pretty cute, little spider. Um, I think what's most exciting to see for a lot of people is in Kentucky and Missouri, the cave crawfish, because um, they're like you know little see-through lobsters <laughs> underground. Those are pretty neat. Um, yeah, I'm usually looking at the rocks. I'll be honest. <laughs> Yes. The longest period of time I spent in a cave is, um, I believe, seven days, which actually isn't that long. Um, some of the cavers on expeditions around the world, some of the deeper caves in the world, spend, you know, two weeks. They can, so, yeah. <laughs> Go on. Yes. Can caves be rehabilitated? One of the ones I visited was. Heavily used um, graffiti, human uh -huh. waste, beer bottles, oh. stuff. Wah, wah. So, Where was that? In Wyoming. Was that on Forest Service? I'm not 100% sure. It might be. It might be. <laughs> yeah. But it's semi-restricted. Yeah. Unrestricted yeah. So that's a good question to you. The question was, can caves be rehabilitated? Um, yes, they can, although it's never the same, right? I mean, I think we talk about restoration a lot in the Forest Service with caves. It's definitely rehabilitation. Um, there's a lot of different levels of that. And so we have, again, our partners, the National Speleological Society, while they love walking around and looking for caves, they also get really excited about a good sinkhole cleanup. They love pulling tires and fridges out of sinkholes. But they also love doing graffiti cleanup as well. We have a, a lot, actually quite a few projects on National Forest right now that are graffiti cleanup projects. Um, we have in Mammoth Cave National Park, they have a couple of cave conservation specialists who are gluing 
formations back together in a special way with a special glue, um, putting them back together after they were stolen by a local rock shop in the area. So, um, yes, um, there are a lot of... It's a, there's a whole book on cave conservation and specifically restoration. And it has some really interesting chapters on things like knowing what is actually... Um, graffiti and what's like a historic signature. Like, when did spray paint become invented? And what's historic? And what does, you know, a signature from the 1800s look like versus something that's that's more recent? So that's a good question, too. Alright. Thank you very much for joining us. And we, we're, I'm between the speaker and her beer. Let's fix this problem right away. I'm so patient and professional. We uh, hope we will see you next month. We have an archaeologist who does work in Africa coming to visit with us next month. And um, if you don't mind, uh, maybe one more hand for these guys here at the saddle. Thank you so much.